Hi, and welcome to another episode of African Joe Paddy. My name is Ife, and I am recording from Staffordshire. And I'm Dehia Belhabib, your co-host on African Joe Party, and I'm speaking from Vancouver, Canada this time. Okay, today we're going to be talking about maritime security in Africa. And before we start, we'd like to sort of clarify what we mean by maritime security, because it is one of those concepts that there's just so many definitions. There's not necessarily an agreed definition of how it should be defined. And so to help your understanding of what we're going to be discussing today, we would want to define maritime security as the absence of threat, threat to seafarers, to fisher folks, or anyone that depends on the resources from the maritime domain for subsistence, threat to the state, be it from state actors or non-state actors. In fact, the maritime domain presents an, um, an opportunity to sort of highlight the interconnectedness of the human and national security concept in that threats in, on the maritime domain, be it piracy or armed robbery at sea, illegal fishing, have implication on human security as well as on national security. Yeah, it, it has become some sort of a buzzword as well, um, hasn't it? And it does incorporate many interconnected fields, as you, you just mentioned, and it's really complicated to work on, especially in the regions where um, the regions that are most affected. And we are really spoiled today to have you, uh, Ife, as, as you know, like you're a co-host, but also to welcome with us um, Dr. Dirk Siebels, a senior analyst at Risk Intelligence, a Denmark-based security intelligence company where he is responsible for analysis on countries um, in sub-Saharan Africa. He holds a PhD from the University of Greenwich in London, and his research largely concentrates on maritime security issues in sub-Saharan Africa, including the role of ports, maritime trades, which is which is kind of uh, you know traditional to maritime security, but also illegal fishing, offshore energy production, and the evolution of private maritime security providers in this space. Um, Dirk has contributed to a number of research projects, including the annual State of Policy report published at, uh, at Stable Seas. Um, he's also an academic advisor amongst his many hats, I would, I would, I would assume, for the Turkish Navy's Maritime Security Center of Excellence in Istanbul, and part of the expert network for Simlaws Africa, which is a think tank based in Ghana, uh, in Accra to be more precise. And more recently, he has written a book uh, with a very sexy title, I must say, uh, Maritime Security in East and West Africa, A Tale of Two Regions. And um, we're really happy and excited to have him with us today to speak about that as well. So welcome, Dirk. Thank you very much. I have nothing to add after that fantastic introduction, I have to say. Yeah, well, you, you'll, you, we'll <laughs> probably uh, bug you to tell us a lot about the anecdotes and how you've become or you've gotten to the idea of writing the book and to connect the two regions, uh, East and West Africa together. We're really eager to learn from your experiences and happy to have you with us. That's very good. Um, and I'm very, very happy that I can join you today um, after we had to postpone a couple of times due to various <laughs> children's emergencies. Um, 
myself included, and then <laughs> some of the hosts as well. So I'm very happy that we managed to uh, organize ourselves across various time zones and locations and everything. So that's very good. And I'm very happy that I was allowed to basically invite myself to your podcast. And I have to say, I'm very <laughs> pleased that you got around to actually do it because I was following the Twitter conversation before that. And I thought that's a fantastic idea. And I was very eager to listen to the first one. And when I, when I was listening to that, incidentally in Port Harcourt, when I was traveling in Nigeria, um, mm -hmm. then um, I thought that was very apt to listen uh, to a podcast like that while being um, in, in one of the regions that you're actually talking about. Yeah, that's, that's really awesome. You know, like circling back to family lives, like, you know, we do have lives beyond our jobs, I guess, and expertise. So I think our audience will forgive us for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really tempted to ask you the question, what, what you do have to say for yourself, but I'm told that it's rather an accusatory tone which it's not meant to, but rather I really uh, want to hear about your anecdotes with regards to maritime security and, and the things that you've witnessed and the stories. And I would, I would really love for Ife um, and to hear from Ife the stories as well uh, to circle back to that. So um, any recent anecdotes in your recent trip that you were talking about? Um, I was thinking about anecdotes when we would preparing for the podcast and I was thinking about one of the things that I actually didn't include in my in my book but I did include in my PhD thesis on, on which the book is based on mm -hmm. um, so this goes back and Isha will very much understand that because we were at a, at a conference very recently that was very similar so a couple of years ago the London International Shipping Week was um, obviously being held in London and that's all sorts of maritime events all across the city, um, including some maritime security related events. Um, and one of these things where I was invited to, um, I was attending, attending was specifically about maritime security in um, both East Africa, so basically off the coast of Somalia and also in West Africa. Um, and coming into this room, um, there were about, I would say about 100 people, it might have been 80. Um, I did fit in very well uh, as a middle-aged white man, um, but there wasn't a lot of diversity in that room, um, considering that one of the topics for discussion was that there need to be, there's a need for African solutions to this, uh, to this very African problem of maritime security. I thought, this doesn't seem right completely. I mean, I know that maritime security is a very male word, um, so it's fantastic to have uh, you two speaking about that. Um, but it, it was also a very um, Western European world on, on that day. And in many other conferences, I've, I've experienced the same thing. And um, yeah, it, in, in some ways you, you sit there and there's a, it's a very good German word for it, um, which sort of describes the concept um, that you you kind of feel remote shame or you you feel shame on behalf of somebody else when they when they should really think about when they're saying African solutions to an African problem and they haven't really had a lot of experience in Africa. Not that I'm African by birth, but I mean at least I've been traveling there quite extensively for the past uh, couple of years. Um, so I feel like I. I do have a lot more experience than many people who actually uh, talk about 
African solutions to African problems from um, cushy offices in London or Copenhagen or other parts of Western Europe. So yeah, that was that was one of the um, very odd things or very odd anecdotes that I had during my PhD time in London. That's that's well. Sometimes the continent adopts you. You become African. <laughs> <laughs> you become Africanized. So when when you know, like there are a few things um, as Africans that we like African time, African time zone, for example. No, I was gonna add. I was gonna say that on that very important note, I would like to thank you, Dirk, for walking the talk. In terms of obviously, you've seen something that made you uncomfortable, and you're actively working to change that narrative. Because I'm assuming this was what you had in mind when you um, extended. Well, you recommended me for the Fourth of July, IMO UN international maritime organization UN a meeting on, on maritime security in the Gulf of Guinea and I'm assuming it's not actually I'm assuming because outside my person who was obviously invited from the from the research background and of course the people from and the director general of Lemasa and and Derek the representative from the ICC it was basically a marriage it would have been a maritime security um, conference or symposium on the Gulf of Guinea by a bunch of white people <laughs> coming to talk about maritime security in the Gulf of Guinea. So I guess I, I want to use this opportunity to say thank you so much for sort of walking the talk in terms of seeing something that, that isn't right or sort of walking towards changing the narrative. Yeah, you're more than welcome. And and when I was listening to your first podcast, I actually I thought, well, some of these experiences that you had during conferences that, you know, people don't really or men particularly don't really think that you could you could possibly be a PhD or you could possibly know about these subjects. Um I I personally I don't understand it. I mean I I know that it's happening, but it's it feels a bit strange because, you know, obviously I haven't had those experience, those kinds of experience, so I can only listen to that, and I can only say, and I'm very sorry on behalf of everybody um, who should feel ashamed for that, because I mean, first of all, you're you're perfectly capable in what you're doing, and secondly, I I don't understand either the concept of having no women or not many women at least in the room when you talk about, um, you know, all these gender diversity and all these kinds of things that are somewhat related in, in, in many cases to maritime security issues as well. Um, but also not having any actual Africans in a room when you're talking about African, you know, topics, whether it's maritime security yeah. or anything else. Um, so yeah, um, and I, I do feel adopted by, um, particularly by Ghana, I have to say. <laughs> I spend quite a lot of time in Accra, so I feel very at home, very much at home there by now. That's really awesome. I remember my first my first going to Senegal, my first trip to Senegal. I was they were telling me, no, you're not African, because I was from North Africa, and they didn't mm -hmm. consider that African enough. And by now, they've adopted me too, and I'm really happy for. I consider Senegal actually, <laughs> <laughs> but it's been, it's been quite challenging. It's really been quite challenging. But um, I think I think. Um, we're perpetuating somehow the same problems over and over again. The lack, and I'm only we're only talking about Africa here because this is basically Africa and Joe Bardi. So, um, 
the lack of acceptance that there is a problem with regards to this um, always a bunch of um, people that have no experience on the field um, that are not from the continent that have no understanding of the realities of, of maritime security and insecurity on the field that go into conferences and talk about African designed solutions, i.e. solutions that are actually appropriate for the regions is really funny to me because, um, you know, it's, it's, over, it, it's the same, repeating the same problems over and over again. We're always talking about the problems on the field, but the big problem or the biggest problem is the lack of perception that maybe it's because we're not finding solutions because it's people from out there, not out there, but outside that do not understand the realities of the field. It's not about, I don't think that it's about um, whether or not people are from there, but people that are experienced there that have been seen enough from there and people from there as well, um, it's, it's really important to include them and not including them is the actual problem with regards to maritime security. We, we, we have seen the problems on the field and the fact that we don't see or we don't perceive an African design solution is maybe the problem, the biggest problem of all because we're going to perpetuate the problems over and over again. And, and it's always going to be a bunch of, um, you know, we, we, we've, we're looking at this uh, from the Somalian perspective, the moment um, where international, the international effort has declined, um, illegal fishing came back, piracy reemerged. Uh, we've seen we're we're seeing this in the Gulf of Guinea as well. And you two can talk about it uh, much better than I do. But from an outsider's perspective, the way that I see it is that the solutions are always the same, and these are westernized, driven, um, easy band-aid solutions that are not appropriate on the field. I completely agree. I don't want to steal anything from Eva. I have to say. Oh no, but, please. Uh... <laughs> you are a guest, please. Do as much talking as you'd like. But yeah, I, I completely agree. And um, yeah, there, there are many issues um, in both on, on the sort of strategic or political level where you think, oh, you know, how can you, can you come up with programs or, or financial and technical assistance like this when you know that this is not going to be sustainable. But there's also, um, and, and coming back to the anecdote, there's also like on the on the operational level, there are some things um, where it's just very interesting to observe and to see different perspectives. So one of the things um, when I was traveling in, in West Africa um, the past couple of years, one of the things that I've been doing for, for uh, on behalf of Risk Intelligence, the company that I'm working for, is going to ports. Um, so we're doing port surveys um, on behalf of, of various clients of shipping companies that are, that are calling these ports um, and when I'm there I'm usually talking to shipping agents and, and, and ship agents basically what they do is that they are the, um, the link between the shipping company that sends a ship to a specific port um, and the local authorities and, and, and they take care of um, bringing supplies bringing fuel to the ship um, making sure that crew um, crew changes work, et cetera, et cetera. And they take care of a lot of paperwork. So basically they are the link for the captain who comes to the port with the ship um, and the local authorities. Um, and 
one of these agents, and I've heard that story afterwards from, from a couple agents, a couple other agents as well. Um, one of these agents said that um, whenever he has a ship um, from different companies, doesn't really matter, um, coming to uh, a specific port in West Africa, whether that's Cotonou in Benin or Lome in Togo or another port as well, um, he always says to the captain, look, we have authorities that will come on board and they will look for expired food or expired medicine and, and mm -hmm. things like that. So minor things um, where you could be fined um, just because they can and, and just because that's, that's the way that agencies in, in West Africa work um, and in many other parts of the world as well, I suppose. Um, so the captain says, yeah, that's fine, um, completely agree, um, and thanks for, thanks for the advice. Then the ship actually comes to the port. Um, the agent goes on board and authorities come on board, health authorities, port state control, etc. And these authorities, the first thing they do is, yes, they look for, for food and for medicine, and obviously what they find is um, cans that have been expired three months or medicine that expired six months ago and the agent is like oh captain what are you doing I told you you are going to mm -hmm. find it. and the captain says no no that's fine we'll sort it out and then he goes with the health inspector with with some other official he goes back to his cabin um, 15 minutes later he comes out and says okay it's all sorted it's all good um, and what happened probably behind closed doors and nobody really knows that but probably he said well i'm going to pay you x amount of dollars probably 500 dollars then the captain goes back to his shipping company um to his mm. superior who sits somewhere in copenhagen or in singapore or in hong kong and he thinks oh you know it's west africa it's all corrupt there anyway um so mm. the captain says oh you know i had to pay a thousand dollar um because of some ridiculous fine um just so that our vessel doesn't get detained um, and the rest of the money just ends up in, in the captain's pocket. And various agents have told me the same story in different shades all over again. And so basically, that's sort of perpetrating the idea that, yes, there is a problem with corruption, but it might be exaggerated. Um, and it, mm. it might not be as, as ex expansive as it, it is being reported. Um, never mind the fact that whoever pays is, is just as guilty of corruption as who, who gets the bribe. That's that's so, yeah. yeah. So um, I think that's that's also one of the reasons where you think you know you have a narrative, um, and then everything that many people do is sort of reinforcing that narrative, and it's really really hard to get rid of that that narrative in the first place. And I've, I've talked to so many very good law enforcement officials in West Africa, very highly trained naval officers who are perfectly capable of doing their job and, and probably much, much better trained than many naval officers from Europe. But the problem is they don't have resources, they don't have ships that can actually go to sea, they don't have money for spare parts or money for fuel. Mm -hmm. um, and these are the problems. So it's not the training, it's not the capabilities, um, but it's just a question of how well equipped are they to actually do their job. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. And like circling back to corruption, they also have a bad reputation on their backs, which is not always accurate. Yes, that's that's also another problem. Yeah. And actually, in talking about perpetrating that narrative, and and we, I, I believe it was in our first podcast, or was it the second one when we talked about how someone will be sitting somewhere in in a country in the global north questioning so how come these people are not accepting the solution we're giving them and then trying to sort of talk about this corruption issue that you raised 
I remember in terms of studying discussions I've had with stakeholders and, and I'm like, yeah, but this corruption issue keeps coming up again and again and again. And, and basically the, the, the response to it is, is, is something like, oh, well, that is what they would always say. What else can they say? And even as a researcher and also someone from the, from, from the region, you, you sort of become fed up of hearing the same thing when you you want to discuss maritime security issues or the cyclic nature of some of the security issues that's is happening in the region. And when you're speaking to someone that is not from the region, the first thing they talk to you is, oh, but there is so much corruption. But the example you've just given, Dirk, have sort of highlighted how even when an officer is not interested in, in, in taking bribe from you, just want to go ahead and do his job by giving you that fine, your action as a, as a captain or as whatever, because you have this conception of, oh, they're all corrupt, means yeah. that you're actually the one instigating that corrupt practices. And another thing, I don't know if I'm varying away too much, but it also brings us back to how the corrupt practices or the actions of sometimes these captains or, or um, yeah, captains, have sort of somehow resulted in, I don't want to say the manipulation of the piracy and Amrabia Sea data when it comes with statistics that is coming from, especially the Gulf of Guinea. But you find that because people know that they can actually sort of dupe, I don't know if the term is dupe insurers, but can get something out of insurers. And because they know that piracy and Amrabia Sea is a problem in the region, they sometimes raise false alarm, which obviously at the end of the day, it's detrimental to the economic security of the region because it means that the perception remains that piracy and unrobriacy is very perverse. Yes, it is still a problem, but perhaps it's not as bad as some of the figures we're seeing in that people or, or captains or whoever are able to manipulate the figures or maybe raise false alarm when there's not been anything. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this before, Derek. I mean, because of your work, and obviously in recent times. Yeah, I've seen, I mean, just earlier this year, I think there's, there's two sides to this. I mean, first of all, there's been a lot more reporting uh, about mm -hmm. all sorts of maritime security incidents or attacks against all types of ships in West Africa, and there have been also <laughs> official reporting anyway. Pardon? legitimate reporting like actual incidents yeah well that, that mm, was yeah. what i was about to say i mean yes there's legitimate reporting and that has increased um just um i think people are becoming more aware in the shipping industry and certainly in the reputable part of the shipping industry people are becoming more aware of the problem and it has been a problem for 30 40 years i mean the first resolution that was ever um that was ever um, uh, provided by the international maritime organization uh, was in the early 1980s, and that was specifically concerned um, with maritime security in West Africa, um, mm. which is which is very interesting, and many people tend to forget about that. So it's it's not a new problem really, um, but I think in the last couple of years, um, the the people in the shipping industry have become more aware of that, and um, there are all sorts of um, organisations trying to work together in in West Africa. So he. 
there's a there's a thing called the Yaoundé process, and and Eva mentioned the ICC, um, which is the International Coordination Center in Yaoundé, and they are working. The problem is they, they again they don't have a lot of resources, both human resources mm-hmm. and financial resources. Um, but they are with a, with the very limited resources they have is is um, they are actually doing a very very good job, I think. Um, and they're trying to coordinate navies and other law enforcement agencies in the maritime environment. Um, but then again, there's from the shipping industry, there's not a lot of trust in navies and law enforcement agencies uh, in West Africa. So cooperation is sometimes at least a bit complicated. Um, mm-hmm. And hopefully that will be getting better in the next couple of years. But anyway, this reporting is getting better. And I think that's testament to the fact that this whole Yaoundé process is working and it really only started in 2013 and got, out of, got off to a very slow start. Um, mm-hmm. And going back to this reporting, whether it's legitimate, yes, sometimes, or in, in many cases, yes, it is. But in other cases, um, just this year, there have been a couple of case, cases where um, ships have been reported as attacked. Um, there was one incident in, I think it was in April, where a small product tanker was attacked just off Bonnie Island, which is a, is a very dangerous area. Um, and this ship was at anchor off Bonnie Island in the southern part of the Niger Delta. Um, so either they were blissfully unaware of the threat level in that part of the Gulf of Guinea, um, or... Um, which is much more likely they were actually involved in some sort of illicit activities at sea, mainly in terms of fuel smuggling, because that's completely prevalent. And Aoife will know much more about that than, than I do, because she's actually done research in throughout the Niger Delta. Um, so fuel smuggling is a massive problem there. Um, and there are many, many vessels involved in that. So when that ship gets attacked just off Bonnie Island. It doesn't really sound like a straightforward kidnap for ransom attack where crew members get attacked, uh, brought back to the to the Niger Delta to hostage camps, and then a ransom is negotiated, and then a couple of weeks later they are they are released. This sounds much more like a dispute between a criminal or two two organized groups of criminals, um, the buyer and the seller, um, who probably couldn't agree on the price or on the delivered product or something like that. Um, and the crew members who actually were kidnapped from that ship, they may have gotten in the way and they may have been unfortunate victims in that case. Nevertheless, this is not just a straightforward attack and this doesn't increase the threat level for ships that are involved in legitimate operations um, in, in that part of the world. So yes, it does make a lot of sense to look into the detail of these incidents and to actually analyze these incidents very, very carefully and to say, you know, does, does this actually signify um, an increasing threat for merchant ships in general? Um, or is it just something that, um, you know, is, is part of the, the overall criminal um, background that, that is unfortunately a problem in the Niger Delta and in, in other parts of West Africa as well? Um, particularly when you're talking, talking about fuel smuggling. I'm curious to find out whether insurance costs go up with this um, increased reporting. Well, it, it's probably perceived as an increased risk by those who simplify the issue. But like this increased reporting, like we see more incidents, more reported incidents. Like, do the the, the costs of insurance increase for the company? Absolutely. Do you want to take that there? Yeah. Um, 
I'm not an insurance expert, um, but I I would say they are staying at a very high level. I, I don't think they have increased just because of incidents that have been reported this year, but they are certainly staying at a very high level mm-hmm. when, at least in some cases, that is probably not so much justified than in others. Um, but then insurance in the shipping industry is, is, is a very complicated subject. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's... Uh, it, it, first of all, it's very complicated to find any um, any good figures on that. Um, so it's really hard to say. So it's more sort of anecdotal evidence rather than anything else. Um, but I would say they are staying at a very high level in general um, when it's not in all cases really justified to be on that level. Hmm. And, and, and the question of resources as well, just thinking about that as well, um, in terms of costs and, you know, the costs of monitoring and um, I was in a, I'm not going to put on names on the countries because I would, I would basically say what RFMO was, but I was recently in a region where um, um, a high ranking official within an RFMO that was governing that region, maritime region, happened to be involved in a massive drug trafficking scheme that was uh, within multiple jurisdictions and mm-hmm. um, it I, I the boat one of the boats there were multiple boats one of the boats um, that were involved in the drug trafficking was sheltered at a port there peacefully and it kept doing its activities because well the, the, some people within the authorities were involved but thinking that a high-ranking official within an RFMO is involved um, is really, at the end of the day, it's really freaking me out because all the negotiations um, that I've heard, meetings that took place within WTO and a lot of the stuff that when we talk about fisheries management, illegal fishing, um, security at sea, because they work on other issues as well, like the blacklist and stuff, circles around the role of RFMOs and the fact that these boats go not not the boats but their companies and the people who own them and the skippers etc go not even unpunished we're not even talking about they keep doing what they're doing is really um, adds onto that equation of ships um, masking criminality at sea with um, with pi- masking a reaction to their criminal activities at sea um, as piracy, this joins us basically. So, what can we consider as piracy, really, and how can we define it in such a way or in a new way that does not criminalize people um, because they want to protect their adjacent waters, for example, without falling into like the what is it called, like the. Um, um, what is it called when someone takes on a security agenda or something and does revenge on their own? What is what, what is the term for that? Vigilante. <laughs> Without um, so this is with respect to like non-state actors. Are you talking about like Somali side response to to not to, to Somalia? We see that elsewhere see? as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We see that as well uh, as like the sense of frustration that people feel that drives that what we call piracy, Somalia, and we've heard about Senegal as well, um, where some people that were actually completely, some fishermen who, who were completely legitimized by the local councils caught some skippers and they were they were treated as pirates after afterwards. You know, things like that, like without 
The example that Dirk has just given, this example that I just gave basically what worries me is basically the lack of, not even definitions, but the, the lack of taking into account these instances or these incidents might actually criminalize people that are not criminals at all. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, sorry, am I, am I stealing your no, word? No, please. No, please, please. Go on. Um, I think, I mean, working working for a company that um, has mainly shipping companies as clients, um, I think from an outsider's perspective, the problem is that, for example, for a shipping company or even for an insurance company that doesn't have a lot of, ne doesn't necessarily have a lot of knowledge about a specific region, um, they want to see something that is simple. So black and white pictures would be fine. Um, mm -hmm dealing with all sorts of gray in between is complicated. Um, and when you have commercial realities to face, that's not really what you want to do. And I completely understand that. And it's something for, certainly for law enforcement agencies or for navies, uh, but probably more for law enforcement agencies to be involved in um, and to be, to be also more transparent. And I think that's one of the things that I would say to um, essentially every law enforcement agency in Africa, um, or at least every single Navy, Marine Police, Gendarmerie, Marine, um, that I have had experience with, um, is there are a lot of people who are well-trained, as I mentioned earlier, um, who are mm -hmm. well-educated, who know what they're doing. Um, but they also know that they have resource constraints, that there's all sorts of limitations on their day-to-day -day work. Um, but be more transparent with that. Um, and say, you know, we, we can't do this um, because of A, B, and C. And we, we can't do that um, because, you know, if we detain some illegal fishing vessel, then the next morning we get a call from the presidency and, and they tell us to release the vessel um, just because there was some high-level politician who is actually corrupt or who is in, involved in some corrupt practices. Yeah. And these things happen. Um, but unless there's more transparency, then it's very hard for outsiders who don't deal with these things on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it's very hard to understand. Um, and it's very hard to understand all these shades of gray in between. Mm -hmm. You have something to add on this, Ife? This is really interesting. Yeah, so I was going to say, I think it's very interesting that you made the point about transparency and how um, you know, in terms of saying I can't do this because of restraint constraint, this resource constraint, which unfortunately, I mean, from my own personal experience, I see that um, be it um, navies, be it fisheries agencies, be it Coast Guard, increasingly, I mean, due to, I guess you could call it cooperation or willingness to cooperate, you find that they're actually willing or eager to do better. But... I don't know if the term is actually um, political commitment because you find that all the time the constraint remains that even when their governments have shown the commitment, they don't sort of walk the talk by at least investing in the resources that is needed. There's still there's so much emphasis on looking at the, the foreign donors, which I guess in the context of security issues at sea is actually should be a global concern for everyone. And I don't have any problem with foreign donors donating and supporting um, countries uh, in the African continent to do better. But I feel that 
those leaders, the government of those countries in the region should also sort of show the, the willingness or the commitment that they are aware of the importance of maritime security for, for their economic development, for sustainable development of their people, by at least investing, having a budget. So I'll give you an example, the reason why I'm reiterating this. Obviously, fish uh, fisheries is very significant to the food and economic security of not only Nigeria, but millions of people in the African continent. But I'm giving you the Nigerian example because during my field work, I was astonished to find, obviously, you know, we talk about illegal fishing, we talk about encroachment by foreign vessels. And this was surprising to me because in terms of talking about how um, fishing communities or, or coastal communities can end up thinking about vigilantism in trying to protect their resources. Mm-hmm. I had an experience during my field work whereby um, this fishing community were telling me about being attacked and actually losing a colleague because they were shot dead by a vessel engaging in illegal fishing. They talk about how they have been on so many occasions being victim to both cargo vessels and fishing vessels who mistake them as pirates. So I wouldn't really know or say whether in this instance this was the case, but they note that they have lost a colleague or they had lost a colleague because they were shot dead by an illegal fishing vessel that encroached the waters in the night to, to fish illegally in the inshore waters. This is up to five nautical miles. And then the question I asked was, oh my God, obviously I was so surprised. And I said, so what would you do if you were in a position to protect yourself? Their response was, if we had access to guns, we would shoot back. And so this is obviously an alarm bell will ring because this is obviously the beginning of, imagine what would happen being that this is the Niger Delta area we're talking about. If these people were actually criminal minded, if they had access to guns to protect themselves and you shot at them as a vessel, the next thing that would obviously be reported would be piracy and amrabiasi kidnapped or kidnapped. They wouldn't necessarily talk about the other things or the underlying issues that has been happening. But the reason why I'm sort of talking about this is that it's now going to bring me back to my surprise that I was told by someone that is in charge of sort of monitoring surveillance and control in Nigerian fisheries, that in the last 15 years, not a cent in Nigerian um, um, currency, we call it Naira, that not a cobble Oh, sorry, not a cobble had been invested or budgeted in the last 15 years to monitoring surveillance and control. So now tell me, how are you going to sustainably monitor the activities of vessels, legal or illegal, operating in your waters without, without budgeting money or without making provisions that would enhance the capacity of the fisheries department? And so. I, I mean, I hope I haven't sort of lost the whole narrative, but I thought it was important to sort of make this point in terms of how actions of, of others can undermine progress. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because we can't say something that condones uh, violence at all, obviously, but at the, of course not. 
a certain point, you know, like if, if the government is not investing in protecting these people within these coastal communities, then they get shot because vessels are allowed in some instances to carry guns on board. And I assume you and Dirk know much better than me. Like I'm just assuming that vessels are allowed to have maritime security people on board, you know, private security people, I guess, on board. Um, why, to protect themselves, why is it not the case for these people within these small coastal communities when a big vessel comes in and shoots them dead, basically? Uh, not condoning violence again, but you know, that, that sense of desperation because the government is not taking care of them, their country is not taking care of them, and, and they're fishing to survive, and on the other hand, they get shot at because they're there. It's, 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 because they're there, but they, even more, they get shot at sea by an illegal fishing vessel to start with. Um, it's really intriguing. Like, it's uh, how does it not build a frustration? To me, it, I'm frustrated, quite frankly. I am frustrated to the point where I'm just questioning the whole idea of why do they not have guns to protect themselves just as much as the other boats do. Oh, no, just to clarify, I mean, in the context of Nigeria, actually, if, if, if the story is accurate, they are not allowed to bear arms in inshore waters. Private securities are not allowed to bear arms. So just to clarify, if, if that was actually a true story, then the actions of those vessels is, is in itself illegal. Okay. They were there illegally shooting illegally with an illegal gun. Great. So yeah, that would have been illegal. The fact that they were in Nigerian territory, in the inshore waters. Yeah. Unless, of course, they are affiliated with the Navy because they have this um, kind of arrangement. So um, circling back to private security and, and, and all of that, Dirk, you've published a book recently. I have indeed. And I'm, I'm very glad that you, that you think it's a sexy title. You're probably the only person in the world who thinks that, but thank you very much. <laughs> I'm probably not, quite sure I'm not. <laughs> let's, let's more about the book, please. Like, how did the idea, idea emerge and what is it about? Um, tell us more about it. Um, so, very short version is that the um, the book is actually an updated and slightly shorter and slightly more exciting version of my PhD thesis. Um, so, I finished my PhD in essentially, well, I handed in in 2017. Um, so, um, up until that point, I did a lot of updated research. So, it was very updated at the time I was done and then um, it was based on the administration at, at university, et cetera. It took some time until it was actually, um, I had my Viva and, and I got my PhD officially. So um, then I got in touch with a publisher and I'm very grateful that Palgrave Macmillan accepted my, my book proposal for this. Um, and they said, yeah, that sounds like a very good topic and something that we haven't got in, uh, in our portfolio for, for, for now. And um, so I thought, you know, having had uh, a, a complete PhD thesis, it can't be too complicated to actually write a book. It's just basically updating a couple of chapters and basically editing a little bit. Turns out it's still quite a lot of work. Um, but um, I'm quite pleased, uh, I have to say, with, uh, with the whole thing. And now it's been published just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and as you mentioned, it's called Maritime Security in East and West Africa, which is a very good description of what it's actually about. Um, so the, um, the, the first part is about a definition of maritime security, because as Aoife mentioned at the beginning, there, there just isn't a very good definition. There's all sorts of um, things where people talk about naval power and sea power and all of these things, but that's not really important in the, um, in the African context um, and in 
just basically in many parts of the world is not really important. Um, so what Eva talked about in terms of a definition, um, uh, that's something that I'm, I'm covering in the first chapter. And that's actually a very good summary of the first chapter. Um, and then I'm essentially looking at maritime security from a sort of a um from a from a government point of view so i'm i'm comparing east and west africa mainly because there's been different responses to maritime security issues when you look at east africa um the western part of the indian ocean um obviously somali piracy has been the headline grabbing problem for many years um and there's been all sorts of international naval involvement etc but it was all very much focused on somali piracy um or just counter piracy operations rather than anything else and that has only changed really in the, in the last one or two years whereas you're looking at west africa um i've, I've talked about the yaoundé process very briefly earlier um this was a document that was adopted in 2013 by governments from in western central africa and um it's specifically concerned with all sorts of maritime security issues including piracy but also including illegal fishing including smuggling including all sorts of other things, um, illicit activities in the maritime environment. Um, so this is a very different concept. Um, and, and how that has been translated into practice and how that, um, how that has an effect on different things and on different economic um, activities in the maritime environment um, is a question. And the one thing that um, I would like to be my takeaway um, from the book is that I would like to argue with any government that they need to have some sort of a maritime business case. Um, just look at the maritime environment and what does it actually mean for your country? Do you have, for example, offshore oil and gas production? Do you have a lot of potential in fisheries? Do you have a lot of potential in maritime trade or coastal tourism or all sorts of other things? So it, it means different things for different countries. And then you can have a look at what does it mean if I don't have good maritime security? Um, how does it impact the um, economic development or the economic opportunities that we as a country and we as a, as a people have? Um, and then what do I actually need to do? Um, how much money do I need to invest? And how do I invest that in a smart way? Because that's not the same in every country. It makes a difference whether you're just protecting a port or whether you need to protect your whole exclusive economic zone because fisheries are really important for the country. Um, and so, yeah, so that makes a difference. Um, but first of all, it means that you have to define as a, as a government or as, as, a, um, as various government agencies coming together, you have to define what sort of economic opportunities do we have. Um, and we can make x amount of money from the maritime environment and in general the maritime the maritime domain of any country is great because nobody lives there so it's it's all for the government to sort out um, they don't have to deal with land rights and, and all these nasty little things that you have to deal with on land um, so it's all the government that needs to sort it out um, with some private involvement in some cases but basically it's it's um, it's up to the government to decide on on everything that happens at sea um, so look at how much money that can bring in through fishing licenses, through you know coastal tourism, through offshore oil and gas production, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then look at how much money do I have to spend um, to make sure that we get that much money or that we can actually increase that. Um, and that would be a good way to start about thinking about maritime security, I think.
monetizing basically and putting dollar signs into the heads of the politicians is always a good idea. It works much more than romanticizing issues, I guess. Exactly. I mean, human yeah. security and, and all these things are are important and, and protecting fishing communities, our communities, etc. But quite frankly, they don't have a lot of political leverage. Um, yes. People in coastal communities throughout West Africa and again throughout other parts of the world as well, um, they don't have a lot of political leverage. Um, basically, nobody listens to them. But when you're talking about money, exactly, people and politicians start to listen. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's unfortunately um, a reality, basically, but um, romantic concepts are not necessarily the best way to engage politicians. Not all the time. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it works. Um, when it's election year, for example, it works. <laughs> but um, a lot of the times, I think it's a good approach that you've undertaken in your book. Um, and where can people find it? So it's, I know, probably on Amazon and things like that, but it would be really great for our audience to know where to get it, basically. Uh, that's very true. If you go to the Palgrave, Palgrave Macmillan, the academic publisher, um, if you go to their website um, and uh, either just look for my name, because that's really the only book that I published with them, um, or just Google maritime security in East and West Africa. And if anybody has any questions, they can also go to my website or just uh, where they can find a contact form and just get in touch with me. And I will gladly send a link um, or just introduce them to my, uh, to my editor if they want to do a bulk purchase. What is, what is your website? Uh, my website, sorry, uh, www.dirksiebels.eu. Awesome. There you go, everybody. So, you know, now uh, Palgrave Macmillan or go on Dirk's website. And yeah, I think I, I can't, I haven't read the book yet, but I can't wait to read it and to get it and to read it. Um, That's it, because I've, we've, we've never actually met in person, which is no. a shame. We need, to, <laughs> we need to actually make sure that that happens at some point. Yes. I have a book on my desk, which is for you. Which is great. Hello. Did we lose Dirk? No, I'm still there. Okay, awesome. So yeah, so we always we're I'm doing a time check. We always end with uh, recommendations and positive notes, or at least we try um, to end with positive notes. So we are lucky um, to have two experts with us, and I would really love to end on a positive note this this episode. So. Any of you have recommendations? If any policymaker or politician is listening to us today, it would be really a great time to ring that on. <laughs> so I, I obviously I would like our guest to have the last word for my part. <laughs> yeah, well, but for my part, I'd like to acknowledge the progress that is being made by respective governments of coastal states across the African continent in terms of being more aware of what's happening on the maritime domain and how insecurity at sea is affecting and increasingly undermining security on land. We're not where we need to be in terms of how or where things need to go by sort of, in, in, again, this is talking primarily now on what's happening with um, West and Central Africa. I like the idea of what's happening with the Inter-Regional Coordination Center in Yaoundé. Again, they are not where they need to be, but I believe that 
with time, with, with support, with the political commitment and time, maritime security threats, in particular piracy and ambrobriacy that has been in recent time been sort of the eighth thing when you talk about security issues in the Gulf of Guinea will be a thing of the past because countries across the region will begin to cooperate better to combat their common security threats at sea in the interest of the economic development of their people and of course the coastal states. Dirk? Yes, I, I, <laughs> I don't know what to add. I, I completely agree. Um, first of all, yes, all of that is true. Um, I think the one thing that I would add is um, while we're actually doing this podcast, or you're actually doing this podcast, I'm one of the guests, um, I, we're waiting for a big maritime security conference in Nigeria, which will start on the 7th of October. And I think this is a very, very good example of Nigeria and other countries in the region being aware and the Inter-Regional Coordination Center that you mentioned, they will uh, hold a side event to actually coordinate better with the shipping industry, um, with just in general the maritime industry. So I suppose with insurers, uh, not only shipping companies, but also other parts of the maritime industry as well. And I think that's a very good, not a first step, but it's a very good step. Um, and they are actually improving their work. So I think, yes, we are getting somewhere. Um, and the one recommendation that I would have is um, what I mentioned earlier, just be more transparent. Just be more transparent with the things that you can do and with those things that you cannot do. Um, navies and other security agencies should say, you know, at the moment we cannot do that for various reasons. Um, but we are planning to increase our capacities over the next couple of years, and we want to be there um, in three, four, five years' time. It makes it a lot more credible when you say, well, actually, we can do this, um, when you first said, well, there's certain things that we cannot do, but we are able to do this. Um, and I think it makes the cooperation between very different partners security agencies from the African continent, um, security agencies from the global north, from whatever country, um, but also from the private sector, as I said, shipping companies, insurance companies, et cetera. It makes the cooperation across these very different sectors a lot easier when everybody knows um, who they're talking to, what their agenda is, um, and also what their actual capabilities are. True. Sure. Great. And with these um, notes, I would like to um, off today's episode, which is on maritime security. And thank you all for listening. Thank you. And thank you to our guest, Dirk, for, um, for being our guest and for sharing your insights on maritime security issues in, in the African continent. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I feel like I talked way too much considering that it's your podcast, really. But uh, thank <laughs> you for allowing me to, uh, to plug my book, really. And we really appreciate you talking that much. <laughs> <Quite> <laughs> much. Okay, thank you all.